Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. So grab your Bibles, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. We've been going through the book of Romans. Today we'll continue that study, picking up at verse 12 of chapter 2. In this passage, we're looking at the judgment of God under the law. That is, judgment before Christ came to earth. That's what Paul's writing about here. In chapter 3, Paul will introduce the gospel. But before he does that, he writes about how things were before Christ came under the law. Let me just recap. In chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, Paul is leading up to a grand statement of the gospel, which he'll give at the end of chapter 3. There, he'll introduce the concept of justification by grace through faith. Before that, Paul first develops the point that everyone needs the salvation offered through Christ. Everybody has sinned and thus needs salvation. And so in chapter 1, Paul speaks of the sins of the Gentiles. And here in chapter 2, he speaks primarily of the sins of the Jews. And so, because everyone sins, everyone needs the forgiveness of sins that can only come through Christ. So, we're in chapter 2, and as I said, Paul is primarily speaking to the Jews here, convincing them that they're not exempt from punishment for their sins just because they're Jews. Many Jews of the time thought that they had special privileges with with respect to judgment just because they were Jews. Paul is setting out to disabuse them of that notion. To point this out, Paul emphasizes the fundamental fairness of God, that when it comes to judgment for sin, all are in the same boat. As Paul puts it back in verse 11, God does not show favoritism. Paul expands on that idea in verse 12, so let's pick it up there and read verses 12 and 13. This is Romans chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Quote, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous." Paul here is kind of stating what is obvious to us, but was not so obvious to the Jews of that time. Uh, Verse 12 again, "...all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law." The wages of sin are the same whether you had the revelation of the law as the Jews did, or whether you did not, as was the situation of the Gentiles. In essence, this verse is saying that you will be judged based on the information that you were given. If you have the law, then you'll be judged by the law, or as Paul says, all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. If you only have the God-given morality of your conscience, then you will be judged by that standard. Or as Paul says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. 
Here's how the great theologian Charles Hodge put it. He's the author of one of the standard systematic theologies, as well as an excellent commentary on the Book of Romans. He said, quote, People are to be judged by the light they have severally enjoyed. The ground of judgment is their works. The rule of judgment is their knowledge. Unquote. Again, this is the basis of judgment in the pre-Christian world. Paul next expands on the specific situation of those who did not have the law in verses 14 and 15. Let's read those verses. Quote, Indeed, when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them." Unquote. Remember, uh, if you heard the studies back in Romans 1, Paul pointed out that everyone is given an inherent knowledge of God, an internal revelation that there is a God. Let's read those verses again. From Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, here's what Paul says, quote, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse." Unquote. So, no one has an excuse for not seeking God, for not seeking to do his will, because everyone has an inherent knowledge that there is a God. On Judgment Day, if God asks someone, uh, why didn't you seek to do my will? No one can say, oh, I didn't know you existed. God will tell, him, God will tell them, you did know that I exist. I gave you that knowledge. As Paul says, quote, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Here in these verses back in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul is going beyond that. Paul is saying that not only does everyone have an inherent knowledge of the existence of God, but they also have an inherent knowledge of right and wrong, a God-given knowledge of morality, a God-given knowledge of the basic requirements of the law. By the way, what are the basic requirements of the law? I'll give you a hint. They're summed up in what Jesus called the two greatest commandments. Let's review those. Here's what Jesus said uh, in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Um, he's actually speaking to uh, uh, the Pharisees here. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments." Unquote. Yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments, and they are also 
part of the inherent moral knowledge that everyone has, because as Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. As Paul pointed out above, everyone is given a knowledge of God, a knowledge that there is a creator. And so everyone has a duty to seek their creator and to do his will. Or in other words, everyone should love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. This follows from knowing that there is a God, that there is a creator. Someone greater than you created you. You owe everything to him. You owe your ex entire existence to him. And so it follows that you should seek to know his will and to love him for giving you everything that you have. And so the inherent knowledge of God that everyone has leads them to follow the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, Back here in Romans 2, as we read in verses 14 and 15, we have an inherent knowledge of the righteous requirements of the law. And so, this should lead us to obey the second of the two great commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. Let me reread verses 14 and 15 again. Quote, Indeed, when Gentiles, who don't have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, and at other times, even defending them." Unquote. Note here that Paul gives the evidence that proves that there is a God-given morality. The evidence is that even those who don't have the law of the Bible, they do by nature things required by the law. Just as Paul says here in verse 15, quote, they, these, these people who don't have the written law of the Bible, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. And then, not only do they have an inherent knowledge of the law, but there is also an enforcement mechanism. It's like everyone has an inherent, you know, police force within them. And this is your conscience. Just as Paul writes, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. The fact that we have a conscience, that we have this spirit within us that struggles with our sinful nature and encourages us to do the right thing, that's a proof that we have an inherent knowledge of the law. The silly cartoons really got it right. Remember in Bugs Bunny or Tom and Jerry or the Flintstones or whatever, there's inevitably a, a scene at some point in some episode where the cartoon character is contemplating some evil and there pops up an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder and, and they're tr each trying to persuade the character, you know, to, to do it their way. You know, the devil's saying, Yes, go ahead and pull Susie's ponytails. That'll be so fun. And the angel saying, No, don't do that. You'll hurt her. And besides, you'll get into trouble with the teacher, etc. Um, that's exactly what Paul's saying here. The cartoonists at Hanna-Barbera or, or Disney or wherever, they, they must be scholars in the Book of Romans. Look again at what Paul says. Their consciences bearing witness, their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and sometimes even defending them, just like in the cartoons.
Note again, the proof that Paul cites that there is a God-given law written on everyone's hearts is that we see people all over the world, even though they don't know Christ or, or have a knowledge of the Christian religion, we see them living decent lives, uh, loving their neighbor, showing hospitality. Uh, just as Paul says in verse 14, quote, Indeed, when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Paul says they are a law for themselves. In other words, they have an inherent knowledge of the law. They prove this by living decent lives, acting with kindness, loving their brothers and sisters, feeding the poor, comforting the widow. When a hurricane destroys the house of a villager, the other villagers come out and rebuild it for them. Why? They have this law in their hearts. And just so you don't think that this is some silly idea of mine, let's look at the writings of some scholars on this point that there is a God-given inherent morality and inherent knowledge of right and wrong. Grant Osborne, a great commentator and biblical scholar who just passed away a few years ago, he wrote this, quote, Not all human beings are crooks, blackguards, thieves, adulterers, and murderers. On the contrary, some honor their parents, recognize the sanctity of human life, are loyal to their spouses, practice honesty, speak the truth, and cultivate contentment, just as the last six of the Ten Commandments require. In this sense, the Gentiles become a law for themselves. That is, they possess a God-given form of the divine law, a form that is in keeping with the Mosaic law." Unquote. Robert Haldane, a Scottish theologian from the late 1700s, he wrote this, quote, The great principles of this law were communicated to man in his creation, and much of it remains within him in his fallen state. This natural light of the understanding is called the law written in the heart, because it's imprinted on the mind by the author of creation, and is God's work as much as the writings on the tables of stone." Unquote. Everett Harrison, uh, a scholar from the 20th century, wrote, quote, Despite the great differences in laws and customs among peoples around the world, what unites them in a common humanity is the recognition that some things are right and other things are wrong. Unquote. And so, this all begs the question, what is the ultimate fate of those who have this inherent knowledge of the law, who live decent lives, not sinless lives, but decent lives, and yet have no knowledge of Christ? Is salvation available to them? Let's now consider this question. It's a controversial question, and so, it's an intellectual challenge, and I'm not one who will shy away from an intellectual challenge. One problem in answering this question is that the Bible doesn't directly deal with this question. The purpose of the Bible primarily is to teach us about God and God's character, God's nature, God's plan, God's dealing with his people, etc. 
The Bible is not meant to be a general philosophical book on hypotheticals concerning if people know this or, or don't know that and, and what will happen. The Bible is written from the point of view that, well, if you're reading the Bible, then that must mean that you do have the Bible and do have the knowledge that the Bible imparts. So why would it speak much about those who don't have the Bible? And yet, the Bible does give us some insight into these things in the form of general biblical principles and in the form of episodes and examples that touch on these things. And so, what I'm saying here today does have a biblical basis. It's not just my opinion about these things. Anyway, I believe that. In order to answer this question, it helps if we review the fate of the Old Testament saints and their possibility of entering into eternal glory, which we talked about in the last study in some detail. And we can use their fate as a guideline to speculating on the fate of those who have no knowledge of Christ. Because if you think about it, the situation of the person who has absolutely no knowledge of Christ is almost the same as that of the pre-Christian Jew, but more extreme. Remember, in the last study, we laid out that, as far as biblical judgment is concerned, there are basically three sets of people. The first set is those who know about Christ and the gospel of Christ. In the second set, there are those who know God's law, but don't know about Christ. These were the Old Testament Jews after Moses. And the third set is those who only have a God-given inherent knowledge of God. These are the people that we're focusing on today. Concerning the first group, those who have a knowledge of Christ in the gospel, I think we can all agree that if they don't respond to the gospel with faith in Christ, they will be condemned. There is unambiguous teaching in the Bible about this. They know about Christ. They're exposed to the Christian principles. If they're truly seeking the truth, they have all the opportunity in the world to find Christ and the salvation offered through him. So they'll be accountable to how they respond to the gospel. Concerning the second group, the Old Testament Jews, we spoke about them in the last study. Remember, we looked at the context surrounding the great chapter, Hebrews 11, which speaks of the faith of the Old Testament saints. The context of that chapter indicates that they were saved by faith, these Old Testament saints, and this faith was a faith that anticipated Christ. Concerning the third category, those who don't know of the gospel or of Christ, and those who don't know anything about God's law as revealed in the Old Testament, Paul speaks of them a bit here in Romans chapter 2 in order to compare them to the Jews. And in doing so, Paul seems to indicate that there is a path to salvation for them. He indicates this back in verse 7. Let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Quote, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Unquote. Remember here that Paul is speaking about the pre-Christ world, the world without the gospel, 
As I said, he'll introduce the gospel at the end of chapter 3, so we'll talk plenty about that later. Yet here, Paul states clearly that there is eternal life available to those in this pre-Christ world, to those who know nothing about Christ. Again, he says, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. They persistently seek to do the will of God as ruled by the dictates of their conscience and their inherent knowledge of God, because that's all the knowledge that they have. They may even have a God-given sense that grace is available from God. Their conscience tells them that they're sinners. And yet, even though they're sinners, the Holy Spirit leads them to seek, as Paul says, glory, honor, and immortality, because they have this inherent sense that God loves them, that God is a God of grace and forgiveness, that God will provide a way for them to have forgiveness of sins and enter into glory, honor, and immortality. So just like the Old Testament saints had a faith in anticipation of Christ, and this is what saved them, so also I believe those who don't have any revelation of Christ or knowledge of Christ can too have faith in anticipation of Christ, according to their own inherent knowledge of God and inherent knowledge of morality. They respond to the dictates of their conscience and seek the true and living God. And so, because this faith in the grace and mercy of God anticipates the salvation that God offers through Christ, in the end, all those who live, who are saved, come to God through Christ. Just as Christ said, quote, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ said this in John chapter 14, verse 6. And if you listen to the study just before this one, this is the same thing that we said about the Old Testament saints and their salvation. It's the same mechanism, and this makes sense, because Paul emphatically tells us in verse 11, God does not show favoritism. It makes sense that non-Jews who have no knowledge of Christ could possibly have the same pathway to salvation that the Old Testament Jewish saints had, provided that they responded to the inherent knowledge of God within them and the inherent knowledge of morality that God has given them. And so, I believe, based on passages in the Bible, that there is a saving faith possible in anticipation of Christ available to those who have had no exposure to Christ or the things of Christ or the gospel. This saving faith in anticipation of Christ is the way to salvation for both the Old Testament saints and even for those who have had absolutely no exposure to any of God's revelation in the Bible. When Paul spoke to the Greeks in Athens, he indicated that God, in the wisdom of his plan, divided people up into lands and nations, all having the means and opportunity to seek God and to find God. Let's read that passage. We find it in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Quote, From one man God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps 
reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Unquote. Again, Paul said, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. It's God's desire that all people everywhere reach out to him and find him. The implication here in this passage in Acts 17 is that everyone on earth, no matter in what country they reside, has the capability to seek God and to find God. Our God is a God of grace, and thank God for that. And his grace is vast enough to reach out to all people. Just as Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1, quote, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, unquote. It's God's desire that everyone be saved and come to know him. And to worship him in truth through Jesus Christ. And so, by his spirit, I have no doubt that he responds to people from all nations and backgrounds when they seek him with a humble heart, desiring to know him. Our role is to bring these people into the light, to present them with the truth of the gospel so that they can be free to stop seeking God because they actually find the true and living God in order that they may then devote their time to worshiping him in spirit and truth and serving him in spirit and truth. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.